Welcome to The Six Figure Therapist, where we discuss professional and practical ways for mental health practitioners to help others and make money. Here's your host, Dr. Arcella. Hello, I am Dr. Arcella, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Six Figure Therapist. I am so excited today because I am speaking with Stephanie Gonzalez, and I'm going to get you to tell a little bit about yourself, Stephanie, and then also tell them how we met. So first, tell us about yourself. My name is Stephanie Gonzalez, and I am a LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social worker in um, Kihei, Maui, which is in Hawaii. I currently work for a Medicaid company called Ohana Health Plan, where I am a primary health coordinator. Okay. Like put right. her down. Sorry, I'm gonna put her in the room. Hi, I'm Stephanie Gonzalez, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker in Maui, Hawaii, and I currently work for a managed health care plan on the Medicaid side, doing um, helping people have in-home support services, especially those with severe mental illness. Um, on the side, I have a private practice called Wellness Kuleana, and Kuleana in Hawaii means responsibility. So wellness responsibility. I do my private practice maybe five to 10 hours a week, and I work full-time as a health coordinator with Ohana Health Plan. And how I met Dr. Trimble was at a residency through my PhD program in Maui. Um, I was looking for someone who would work well with me for my dissertation and um, trying to find somebody who felt comfortable speaking about topics surrounded around sex. And I talked to Dr. Neighbors. I reached out to her and she said, you know who would be a great match for you? Dr. Trimble. <laughs> and so as soon as she told me that, I hurried up and scheduled to get in an assessment or a, a uh, counseling session with you, Dr. Trimble, followed by Dr. Debal, who also works very well with you, who also suggested that I try to pursue you for my committee chair. Yay! Well, I'm excited and I can't wait for us to start the work too that uh, we're going to do for you and about your topic. So, okay. So you are a clinical social worker. And so the one of the questions I always ask everybody is how did you get into mental health? Like what, what, what got you started? Um, so I have a family full of people with borderline personality disorder mm -hmm. and mainly because my mother came from a situation where there was domestic violence and my grandfather would beat my grandmother uncontrollably to the point where my grandmother would um, try to run and hide from him. And during the 60s and 70s, women didn't really have a lot of options to just go buy a home or to rent a home. You needed a man to do that for you. So it made things extremely difficult for my grandmother to kind of get out and find herself um, safety. So she ended up living in that environment until my grandfather got bored and found himself a new wife. Um, and when he, and in that he had caused a lot of trauma to my grandmother and her six girls. And so I grew up with not only my aunts with the borderline issues, but also my cousins because trauma breeds trauma. And at the time I wasn't aware of what the borderline was. I was just aware that I had family members with poor behavior and a lot of trauma. And I really wanted to understand and kind of get to the root of that. So I pursued so, uh, sociology at first because I wanted to understand people and not just individuals, but groups of people and why they interacted the way that they did within their social environment. And it was from there that I was like, oh, aha, these people were living in trauma together and they were not really thriving together. And so that's why it was becoming a problem. And from there I said, okay, sociology is a great um, theoretical backing, but how can I apply what I've learned 
in that in that so, so social environment. So naturally, I thought social work was a great fit for me because they really took the, that sociological theory and applied it. And so I went to social work, and then I started to realize that there are many things that I can do in social work. And, you know, taking it from a humanistic approach, which, you know, I'm really a humanistic therapist, that people, if they don't have their basic needs met, safety in my mom's case, then they're never going to thrive. So if I can start meeting people where they are and start helping them get the needs that they need to have met prior to doing the, the therapy, the one-on-one, -on -one, then I'm providing them a much stronger foundation so that they can learn coping skills and um, learn how to function and adapt to the world that they live in. And that's kind of how I drifted into to social work. And from there, I said, you know, I'm understanding people in their social environment, but now I want to understand what's going on in their brain and what's the neurology behind what's going on in their brain and how did that PTSD affect their brain and how did that contribute to the personality disorder and what does that look like? And so I decided to pursue a PhD and I'm currently in four out of my six years of my PhD in clinical psych and uh, just starting the dissertation route now. And hopefully I will be finishing up shortly. Okay. All right. So, so, okay. So then basically when you start off in sociology in undergraduate and then you switch to psychology, cause you, isn't that what happened? And then later on you were like, okay, social work, which is a really interesting point that, you know, sometimes my students ask, you know, well, where should I go into? And I always definitely get them to consider social work because I think what you're saying is social work has that unique characteristic where we can help people with needs, but we also can provide the therapy. And I think that that also, like you said, it is needed. So to be able to combine both. Yeah. I, I think that that profession, and of course it's, you know, been around forever and I, and it's starting to evolve and change even more, just like the rest of our profession. So yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay. All right. So now um, I also often talk about how therapy, people who do therapy or who do mental health or provide mental health services are gifted, right? So tell me kind of how that looks for you and how did you um, learn about this therapy? So not like necessarily learn about it, but, you know, just tell me about your experience in terms of the giftedness of being a mental health provider. Well, trauma doesn't skip generations unless we end it ourselves, right? So I too was a victim of trauma, not so much in the domestic violence realm, but in my own um, sexual history. Mm -hmm. And when people become sexually assaulted, they do one of two things. They either go into um, become extremely sexual or they retreat. And I went extremely sexual. Mm -hmm. And how that ended up panning out for me was when I turned uh when I was 24, I was married, I got divorced and I went my own way and I wanted to kind of experience my sexual freedom again. And how that played out was I actually got a job working in a strip club as a waitress. Mm -hmm. Now the joke is what's the difference between a stripper and a waitress? Okay. Two weeks. Cause anybody that gets in that industry and waitresses for two weeks, they realize how quickly that money comes in, in the other side of it. And so they switch over. So I started dancing and then I started to realize I, I was at the time going to school and I started to realize that what I was doing was actually sexual social work. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that's what I felt like I was doing. There were people who had a need that they weren't able to fulfill either at home with their spouse or in their life of being lonely. And a lot of people think that guys go into the strip club and they want to have sex. There is that population of men. I'm not going to lie. There's absolutely that population. But I would say probably 75% just were lonely and they needed to feel some kind of intimacy with another human being. And as we know, as therapists, intimacy can be multiple different things. It doesn't necessarily need to be sexually oriented. So what I found myself doing was that I would go and um, 
and give people that one-on-one attention and affection that they needed to feel fulfilled. And I did that job for 10 years. And I will tell you, honestly, it's the best job I ever had. It's the most fulfilling job I ever had. And it really gave me a sense of purpose. Okay, so let's go back. So, so you have this trauma. All right, so, so you talk about your family history of trauma. Then you said you personally had trauma from the family and also from personal experiences. And so, and, and I do definitely understand what you're saying, the choices that people make. Now, but how did you go, and you were married, but then you, you got divorced. But how did you, like, how did it how did you get to let me go be a waitress at the club? Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, I was actually getting, starting to get divorced. I lost a house in a fire, another trauma incident and uh, came, I was living in Dallas, Texas and I moved back down to Austin and I called my um, husband at the time and I said, I don't have enough money to eat. And he said to me very clearly, nowhere in my vows did I say that I would feed you. Mm. And it was that point in my head that I realized that there was nobody in this world looking out for me, but me, and I had to take care of me. And the only way that I was going to get money quickly was by going to be a waitress. And I applied at a bunch of different places, but the strip club was the first one to hire me. And they were the first one that they were, your money comes right away. You don't need to wait for a paycheck versus some of the other um, restaurants paid you somewhat. And then you, you had to go through training for a couple of days. Strip club wasn't that way. they throw you in sink or swim kind of uh, approach. And uh, I went in there and I, and I was noticing that the men were being a little bit more aggressive towards the waitresses. And mm. I think because they're unobtainable. So as I started to notice that, I said, you know, I think I actually want to make the transition over because I would like to make more money. And if I'm going to be pursued that way, at least I can make more money being pursued that way. And it probably took me three or four years to really figure out and get the hustle down of the dancing. Part of it's a self-esteem issue. You have to learn to realize, like love yourself for who you are, because if you don't love yourself for who you are, then how can you have other people have that attraction towards you? So there's a lot of work independently on myself to be able to build my confidence. Without that confidence, I would not have been successful. But without that struggle, I wouldn't be able to understand how other people were struggling. And unfortunately, we're all social beings and how we perceive ourselves is based on how our social construction and other people are perceiving us. So you have to learn to overcome that perception of other people while learning to love yourself. Mm. Hardest thing I ever did. So, okay. So then, so you're waitressing, you see that, like you said, the people are still pursuing you technically. And like you said, even more aggressively because they can as opposed to dancers where there are certain parameters, I'm assuming, around touching them and doing different things like that. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. If I'm going to do this, I might as well make more money. And so how long did it take you to go from the waitress to, was it literally the two weeks or how long did it take you to? It was less time, maybe three or four days. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> you were like, well, okay, real quick, I figured this out. Okay. So then do you have to learn? Now, I know you're getting the people part. We're going to talk about the people part, but just the basics of dancing. Like, did you already know how to dance or did you have to learn to dance? Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I have horrible, horrible rhythm. Um, so So dancing is one of those jobs where it's you versus them when it comes to the dancing world, meaning that you are 
pretty much taking money from another dancer when you go into that club. So the more dancers you have, the less money there is to go around. At least that's the perception, right? So dancers don't teach you how to be a good dancer. They don't teach you how to perform. They don't teach you how to do pull tricks. They don't teach you how to speak to people because essentially if they're doing that, now you become their competition. Mm. Now I say dancers don't. I was the exception because once I really became good at this job and mastered it and then realized that what I had to give was unique and individual and it was not necessarily what everybody else had, I had the mindset that if I can empower every female to do this job from a non-exploitive perspective, and really we're exploiting the men if you do it correctly, Mm -hmm. but if we can do it from an exploitive position of doing that towards the men, then we can all do it together, then we're leveling the playing field and we're all going to make more money. That was my perception. Other girls, not so much. So it was definitely a dog eat dog kind of um, field in the beginning. And a lot of people throwing you under the bus, running you over. Um, dancers are not your friends. They will do anything they can to try to steal from you, take your money, take your clients, even your best friend. So you just kind of have to, it's a, it's a very solo job in the beginning. And once you start to build that confidence and learn that piece, and, and let me tell you, nobody cares if you know how to dance. Guys don't care about that. The worse dancer you are, the more money you make in the beginning because people look at you as fresh meat. Okay. So they're like, oh, that girl doesn't know what she's doing. Let's get her. She's not going to have good boundaries. Gotcha. Versus the girl that's been doing this for 15 years, she's coming out saying, no, you're not going to do that to me. I'm not okay with it. Me personally, what I found is that I would set boundaries with people. And, you know, if I say, don't touch me and they do it again. And then the second time I would say, okay, I've asked you not to, you touch me again. The next time I stop the third time they did it, I would turn around and I would say, clearly you have zero respect for me as a human being. I'm ending this here. Give me my money. And I can't tell you how many people would beg me to please keep going. I understand. I won't do it anymore. The meaner I was, the more money I made. Wow. Okay. Okay. So then, so like you're saying, as you're starting to do this, you're learning about people. So you're learning about the other dancers. That's a whole, that's so you're learning business. Yep. You're learning, you know, how to interact with, with coworkers. Then you're learning about the, the people piece of the men and things like that. And so you use the term, did you say sexual social work? Is that the term you used? Okay. So tell yep. me about that. Like, what do you, Okay, so um, my ideal customer was out of out of town businessmen, and um, Austin, Texas, where I was dancing, had a huge uh, Asian Indian population, and so a lot of people coming there for tech type jobs, and that was my preferred population. One because I understood the culture, and I understood that they were sexually oppressed. So to get to when people come into that environment, they're already uncomfortable, especially if they're not used to that kind of environment. Some people thrive there. Most people are a little bit more uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it was a matter of sitting down and then getting to know people. And so what I would do is I would sit down. Let's just say I sat down with an um, Asian Indian man and I would sit down and I would say, hi, my name is, and I'd always give my real name. And I did that to build rapport. My dance name was Britain, but I would say, hi, I'm Stephanie. I dance by Britain. Just so you know, if they call my name, I have to go. But my real name's Stephanie and I'm currently getting my master's in social work. What's your name? Oh, my name's Sean. Well, what do you do for a living, Sean? I'm an engineer. Well, what kind of engineer? I'm an electrical engineer. Oh, where'd you get your master's degree? I got it at the University of Texas. Now, what I'm doing there is I'm building a rapport with them, okay? And I'm asking them questions about themselves. But at the same time, I'm asking them how much, I'm getting in their head to figure out how much money do you make? Because how much time am I going to spend with you building this rapport is gonna be based on how much money you make. Because 
Now, when I say sexual social worker, I absolutely danced on a sliding scale for people. If you were a manager at McDonald's, that didn't mean you deserved any less of the experience because you didn't make as much money. Mm -hmm. But if you worked as an electrical engineer with a master's degree, I know you're making well over six figures. You're going to pay me a little bit more money, Mm -hmm. you know, so but people that are poor still need that intimacy. They still need that affection. So I'm okay, still giving you that. It's just going to be on a different level. So, you know, the more that I ask the questions about them, the more I get to understanding them, the more that they give me information, the more that I'm building that rapport. What I started to learn is it wasn't what people were telling me. It was what they weren't telling me that was important. So are you married? Yes, my wife is over in India. Do you have kids? Yes, my kids are, okay. What is your sexual relationship like? All of a sudden people shut down. They don't want to share that information. Mm -hmm. Part of that was culture and part of that was a little bit of embarrassment. So once I started to get people to feel comfortable speaking about that with me, I started to have to repeat customers. And that's really where your money comes in or the same people coming in every week to see you. Mm. At one point, I called it doing therapy without a top on. Now, that's what I'm saying. So now as you're asking these questions, are you dancing and asking or are you just standing there talking? In the very beginning of getting to know people, I'm just I'm just sitting there with them, either on their lap or next to them talking. Okay. Okay. Um, Close completely on. Okay. That was a big trick. Keep your clothes on because you want them to pay for your clothes to come on. Um, so I'll actually tell you a funny story about my husband and how I met my husband. Okay. Only man I ever dated in the strip club. So this is actually a pretty good story. Okay. So it was a Sunday night and I got called in by one of my regulars and he said, Hey Steph, I got $500 to give you. Can you come in between seven and eight? I hated getting there that early. I was really more of a 10 to two girl and now working 10 a.m. to or 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., Four days a week, that's 16 hours. I was pulling in close to $250,000 a year. That's how good I got. So this guy calls me and he says, can you come in? Now, the problem is once I go in, I'm, I'm stuck there till two. Management doesn't let you leave. Oh. So it's like, okay, well, $500 is worth it, but now I'm going to be stuck there. Oh, but I really love money, so I'm going to go do it. Okay. So I went in and I worked and maybe nine o'clock comes, this guy's done. I go out on the floor and there's only maybe 15 people in, in the club. 20 dancers, 15 men, it's pretty slim pickings. Mm-hmm. But I'm educated and I'm one of the prettier girls. So I know that I'm going to make money no matter what. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking out on the floor and I'm in a one piece and I'm talking to men and nobody's wanting company. And I walk by my husband and I ask him, would you like company? His legs are crossed. He's like, no, I'm good. I said, okay. So I continue to walk around. I change outfits. I come back out maybe like an hour later. I try it again. This time I realized that my now husband is sitting there with his legs apart. So there's, there's body language you learn in the strip club when people's legs are crossed they don't want company. You keep walking when their legs are open. You don't even ask. You just sit down. You don't give people an opportunity to tell, you know, it's sales. Right. So I sat down in his lap and I start talking to him and I'm like, so what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm an attorney. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. I'm in grad school for social work. Um, what kind of, what do you do as an attorney? And he says, well, I'm more into contracts, but right now I work in a bar because I make way more money doing that. Mm. It's like, Oh, well, what'd you get your undergraduate in? And he said, sociology. And I said, me too. So we nerded out and I asked him who his favorite sociologist was. And we got into this really deep theoretical conversation about 20 minutes into it. I said to him, as much as I love this conversation, I cannot pay my grad school with conversation. Trust me. I tried. They've laughed at me though. Every single time I call down there, they said, no, Stephanie, you got to pay cash or or credit. So I said to my husband, would you like to continue this conversation in VIP? Mm-hmm. Dances on the floor are 20, dances in VIP are 30, but in VIP, you only pay for the dance. I own the VIP booth. And he said, okay, I'll go with you to VIP under one condition. They said, what's that? And he goes, we continue to have the conversation. I said, okay. So we go back to VIP and I'm dancing on him and we're having a conversation the entire time I'm trying to be intimate. 
Now, how, what makes me good at what I do, not only am I intimate and by getting into people's minds, but I'm really good at touching people's faces and their ears and people need that contact. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm building that rapport. I'm dancing on him. I'm touching him. And I'm like, all right, that's one dance. And he's like, keep going. All right, that's two dances. Keep going. Probably did this for about 10 songs. And he, and he stops me and he grabs me and he goes, I'm going to pay you. Stop asking me how many songs. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I dance for him for a full hour. And at the end of the hour, he asked me, how much do I owe you? And I said, I honestly don't remember. I, I stopped counting. I got way too into this. I don't remember. And he goes, well, what do you normally charge for an hour? And I said, $500. And he goes, okay. And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out this wad of money. And I shot myself in the foot for that. He probably had like a brand on him, right? (laughs) And he counts himself out. He gives me $1,000 and he hands me the money. Yeah, he gives me great money and he walks off. And and I said, let me get your number. And really, I really liked him. I really enjoyed the conversation. I was intellectually stimulated. I want it more. (laughs) So he gets my phone number and we end up texting. And that was a Sunday. That Tuesday, he comes back into the club. And he says, okay, I want to get another dance. And I turned to him and I said, we can either be, you can either be my customer or we can see where this goes, but I do not mix the roles. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, let's see where this goes. So did I had leave? so much. Did he leave out? He left. He oh, left. Wow. Okay. He left. Yeah. Huh? And uh, we had built so much rapport and so much intimacy that that blossomed into a marriage now with two children. <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. I still have friends I talk to from the club that were, were um, customers. I still have one that's my best friend that's still going through depression. He was coming to the club because he was lonely and he was depressed. And so I would dance for him twice a week and we would talk about ways that he could build his self-esteem and his self-efficacy and his confidence. And eventually I got him to agree to stop spending money on dancers. And he would just come in and hang out with me. And he actually doesn't spend money on dancers to this day. And I talk to him daily. That's interesting, though. So because, you know, most of the time people don't think of people. I mean, you kind of get the lonely thing, you know, maybe if you're out of town or something, but you really don't think about like when most people think, oh, I need companionship. Let me go to the strip club. You see what I'm saying? So that is an interesting concept. But of course, there's always a reason why every human does something. So what it sounds like you did was let me figure out what their reasoning is and in each and treat each person individually based on what their reasoning is and their rationale for being here. Okay. All right. So let me ask you this. So you did it for 10 years, you said. I started at 24. I stopped at 34 when I moved to Hawaii. But when I go back, I sometimes dabble in it. I got you. So so you, even after you got married, you still did it? After I got married, after I got the master's degree. And I will tell you, honestly, after I got the master's degree, my income increased so much in the, in the club because I had a better understanding of people. Then I would joke with people and I would say, you know what they say, the more educated you are, the more money you make. So if you're going to get a dance from a master, somebody with a master's degree, you need more money, huh? You need more money. Or I would say, I'd straight say to people, $200 an hour with my clothes on, $500 with my clothes off. Which one do you want? Because I'm technically a licensed therapist. And so, yeah, I, that really turned people on. And that part, and we'll have to have a whole nother conversation about this because 
I have in the Six Figure Therapist course, I have a whole module about customer service. And I, a lot of times people have told me that they don't, it's difficult for them to ask for money or think they should be a Six Figure Therapist, which you know, I'm never going to understand that either. Because I don't know if it's, it's some kind of relationship that they have with asking for money or figuring out logically, how do I get people to pay my worth? Because even though, like you said, I'm dancing, first of all, I have experience now and I'm educated dancers. So, and like you said, you use what you had to leverage that where some people might say, oh, I'm not going to even mention that I'm educated because then they're wondering why I'm here. And, da, da, da. and you're like, no, let me have and use everything that I have to be even more successful. And yep. so, yeah, we definitely so- when I first started dancing, they had Tuesday nights was $5 dance night and all the other girls were making $20. And I asked them, how are you doing it? Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, $5 is a table dance, $10 is a lap dance and $20 is an intimate dance. And I just did not have the confidence to say that to people. Mm-hmm. And it probably took me a full two years to be able to be like, no, I know what my worth is and I'm going to demand it. So I can definitely understand where therapists are coming from on the whole, not knowing how to evaluate themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing, too, because I even think about like we do a lot of consulting work and how you even said it's this much money for my top on this much money for my top off. Even something like that also has to kind of force people. So there are times where I've told people, you know, like uh, when we do our consultation contracts, I'll say, sure, for five thousand, I'll do this and it'll just be I'll consult with you. For $10,000, i will consult and you can talk to me you know, on special stuff. But for $20,000, you get da-da-da-da-da. And it just sounds so much right. And then most of the time, people pick the $20,000. And so that's the thing. It's like, we will have to get together and talk about it. Maybe do some kind of a master class on, on selling or something. I think that would be pretty cool uh, to help mental health, right? Because you technically are doing that now in your mental health practice and stuff too. So. Okay. But anyway, okay. So, but you, so you did it for the 10 years because after you got the master's degree, because it was the best job I ever had. Okay. Just unfortunately you age out of it. So you can't keep doing it because yeah, (laughs) nobody wants to spend that kind of money on a 60 year old. So um, part of it. So I actually moved from Austin to Hawaii because I was having a hard time getting out of the industry. It's really hard when that money comes quick and it comes easy and it comes, um, untaxable, right? So it's all based on what I was reporting. Now, don't get me wrong. I did absolutely report what I was making because I wanted to buy a house, especially a house in Hawaii. Can't buy anything for less than a million here. So you need to have that on tax records. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would have, I got out of the job because I got the master's and it was time to move on and, and go on to the next part of my life. But everything that I learned being a dancer has become a part of who I am as a therapist. And it's what makes me a good therapist. And I've personally found that when I speak about sex in the therapeutic session, that I'm very comfortable with it, almost overly comfortable to where people are a little bit surprised. So, you know, I was working with a man who um, was going through a lot of depression. He was houseless. His dog had passed. He actually accidentally locked his dog in the car and he had passed and he was really struggling with that. He went into catatonia, was in the hospital for two weeks. He comes out and I'm working with him on his depression. And out of nowhere, I said, you know, I'm just going to ask him what his sexual life is like. So I asked him and he said, you know, I used to be very active. I used to, um, I'm, I'm all about being in multiple relationships. I'm polyamorous. I enjoy intimacy. I enjoy sexual activity, but I'm not doing it now that I'm depressed. And I said, well, that makes sense. Tell me about masturbation. And he goes, yep, haven't done that in a couple months. And I said, okay, well, you know what? We're working on SMART goals. Can we put some masturbation in there for a SMART goal? 
And he was like, I think that would might, that might actually work. So not only did we put in masturbation, but we talked about different ways that he could achieve that masturbation. So pornography with another person, those kind of things. And we put that in the smart goals. And what I like to do with my clients is I like to discuss and, you know, our one-on-one, and then I will follow up with a text message or an email about what your goals are. And so just kind of as a reminder and, Mm -hmm. What I found, what ended up happening with him was after three or four weeks, he started to slowly pull himself out of his depression. And part of that was not only because he was achieving the SMART goals, but because the sexual being was just a fundamental part of who he was Mm -hmm. and not engaging in that had really taken a toll on him and he didn't know. And so I actually had reached out to my social work supervisor that I see when I, you know, have need some outside the box thinking, Mm -hmm. I reached out to her and I said, you know, how often do you bring up sex in the therapeutic session? (laughs) And she goes, me personally, how often do I bring it up? Never. I wait for the client to bring it up. Mm -hmm. And I said, really? And she goes, yeah. And I said, I wonder how many people we're not treating appropriately because we're not bringing it up. Now in my day job as the health coordinator, I work with quite a bit of people who have schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. people who have schizophrenia on their medications. It affects their sex drive. Mm -hmm. Nobody's talking to them about that. So one of my guys that I talked to, he said that he actually came off his medications because he wasn't able to interact with other people sexually, but coming off his medications makes him a danger to himself. So how do we find that balance of learning to work with people with severe mental illness that are on medications that suppress their sex drive, but finding a way for them to still be their authentic self? And so that's what I work on with this person individually is how, how can we build your self-esteem sexually, but still have you in a safe environment. And that's come It's been a part of finding the right medications, but also finding the right partners, finding the right people who will work with him. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing too. And that's why I'm so excited about the research that we're going to do is to look at the mental health providers and talking about sex. And and because like you said, I'm sure many people that are listening to this don't talk about sex as much either. Right. Yeah. So many mental health providers are not talking about sex at all. And so now with your practice, who are you seeing now in your private practice? And is that something that you're incorporating, do people see you for sexual issues or kind of tell me about what you're doing in your practice? So Maui's population is only 150,000 people. So I can't really uh, specialize or focus on topics related around sex because it's just not, you know, a big enough population to work on that. But what I do is I absolutely address sexual related topics with every single client, my adolescents, all the way up through my elderly 80 something year old Uh, clients I talk to. The majority of my caseload is borderline uh, personality. Not at all who I want to work with, but it's who I attract. So, but guess what? People with borderline personality with interpersonal issues and intimacy issues, they absolutely have that problem of sex and intimacy and feeling lonely and wanting to fulfill that. And so we talk about that and we not only talk about building interpersonal relationships, but focusing on a favorite person. And what does that mean when they become your sexual partner and they're your favorite person? And how can we tie that back a little bit so that you're not overly engaging in that and hyper-focusing on that? And so I found that, you know, the more comfortable I am about speaking about sex, the more comfortable that my client is speaking about sex and the more likely they are to bring up the topics of sex. And I take a little bit from, um, from, Yalom with the asking in the, you know, the therapeutic session, what works well for you? What doesn't work well for you? And I always try to start that session off. And I find almost all my clients say, I really like that you'll talk about sex and sexuality with me. Mm. I like that you'll talk about intimacy with me. 
it might been it might have been uncomfortable when we talked about it, but I'm enjoying it. And so, you know, really, I, I'm a little bit of a Freudian. I really believe that it's core of every single person. What our issues surrounded on are our beliefs about sex, our sexuality, and how we can relate to other people in an intimate fashion. And we have to talk about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and it's, it's interesting. I was talking to a woman earlier, actually, today, and she was saying she had some, um, like, um, sexual things happen to her, like verbally and physically, and it's been years, and she was still talking about it, of course, like it just happened because she hadn't talked to anybody about it, and that's what I asked her, I said, you know, what's going on, and something happened with her daughter, and I think it triggered it for her, but I'm like, okay, but you're saying you want to help your daughter, but you haven't helped yourself, so how do we now help yourself so that you can later help her, but it's just, and then she talked about the shame and things like that, I'm thinking, wow, like, so some of these same beliefs that we have around this, we're still perpetuating and and like you said especially if we as mental health providers don't bring it up then people don't talk about it and a lot of people have this unspoken sexual issues and I work with a lot of couples and I'm always asking when's the last time you all had sex and do you know I'm still shocked that it's sometimes it's years for people and I'm like how what are we doing in and we're not even asking what we're doing together if we're not having any sex and we can you know we're able and even if you're not able to physically do that, you can still have intimacy, you know. Anyway, so I just think it's interesting. So that is one of the things, like you said, that we're like, uh, now I've never put masturbation in the, in the treatment plan, like you said. <laughs> but we do talk about, hey, what do we need to do to get intimacy in these relationships? Like, what are we doing? You know, and when you take intimacy out the relationships, you do find people just robotic and they're just kind of together, especially when they have kids and things like that. I mean, so this is such an important topic that we do have to do a much better job, but most of us don't know how to talk about it because we don't talk about that for classes or anything like that. Well, and then to like further address your point about shame being attached to it, imagine how a individual feels when they bring up to their therapist, you know, I want to talk about my sexual assault. And then the therapist is like, let me refer you out. That's oh, not what true. I do. True. Or the therapist then shows this look on their face, like, you know, they're scared or they don't want to go down that or they hear it. And then they just kind of pass it over. And that's kind of been the experience that I've noticed when I get a lot of clients that come to me that have been referred to me to focus on that sexual trauma. And I just think it's just such a shame that we can't, as as providers, that we all can't be well-versed in sexually related topics. And as you said, I, and I've been throughout this dissertation project, I've been actually pulling different university syllabi to see what um, courses are being offered. And there are at the PhD level in clinical psych, there are not classes that are mandatory. They are electives and topics related around sex are usually covered in a module within a week. And they're typically related around sexual orientation, not intimacy or sexual interactions. And so that's part of, you know, I think, in my opinion, that's part of why we're not doing as good of a service as we can be, because it's not a mandatory requirement in our education, mm-hmm. and not even in our CEUs. And that's another good point. We have to do that, too. I'm telling you, we need to make a master class <laughs> with that, too, because, like you said, if you start to look around, and I'm sure you look, because this is some of what you do in your therapy, do you see a lot of courses on it to talk about sexuality and how therapists can incorporate that in their work? And I haven't seen it, and... 
you know, and I'm sure you look and if you haven't seen much about it, we really do have to do better because I don't, especially if you work with couples, I just don't see how you could work with couples and not talk about intimacy and sexuality. I just don't see how that's possible, but I know it's possible because I've seen people do it. I taught a human sexuality, sexuality course to undergraduates. And uh, that was an interesting experience. And, you know, they showed up every week and we talked about all kinds of stuff. But like you said, after then, why aren't we talking about it anymore, especially for people who help people? And that is a part of the human experience is to have sexuality and all that, you know. And, and also, have you found that was interesting and I mean, this is a little kind of off a little bit, but I think about, I know women who say, oh, I don't want my husband to go to the strip club or I don't want, you know, my man to be at the strip club. Like, what do you just, just, I'm just asking you to talk to cuff, but what do you think about that? Like, what do you, as a person who was actually in that setting, is it something where you're like, oh no, he shouldn't go at all? Or, you know, what, what do you think about that? So my feeling on it is people are going to do what they want to do no matter what. So if you give them a safe space to at least have an experience where it's, kind of structured, in my opinion, that's better. So if you are, if your husband is needing intimacy from somebody else, isn't it better that he goes to a strip club and gets it where he pays for it? And then he's done at the end of the day, or is it better that he reaches out and starts texting somebody or sexting somebody? Right. So that's kind of what, you know, when you're, when you're sick, you go to the doctor, when you need intimacy and you're not getting it at home, go to the strip club. Like that's always been my prescription, but you know, I understand that there's insecurities with women and they think that, you know, my husband's going to go there and find somebody better or find somebody that wants to have sex with them. But let me rest assured what women out there, wives out there. I wasn't in that club trying to sleep with your husband. Your husband gives me way more money, not sleeping with him than he does sleeping with him. And at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is build him up to come home. So he gets some from you. Okay. Now, did you find that women came to the club with the men sometimes or not? That happened a lot. Yep. Okay. Or sometimes women come by themselves. Married women, straight married women would come by themselves. Okay. And they would get that same intimacy and that same treatment. Um, lots of couples would come in. I personally would avoid couples. It wasn't my, my cup of tea. And because when couples came in, it was one of two ways. Either they were overly aggressive trying to find somebody to bring home. Okay. Or the wife was not okay with the husband being there. And she was there just as a babysitter to make sure that things didn't go awry. And I just did not want to be a part of that whatsoever. So I always chose to work with men who were already married, who had a good relationship at home that I could send them back home to. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And so even with that, so even like you said, how you learn things, I think about that when you said that about client selection, you know, like, again, that's one of the things like you like, okay, let me look around and see all the possibilities of who I can work with. And I'm going to pick this group and stick with this group and do well with this group, you know? So yeah, you know, it makes sense. It makes sense. Okay. So when you stopped, and I know you said sometimes you dabble in it, but when you stopped, then that means we lost money. Like, I mean, that means that you, that money that we were used to coming in and doing that, it kind of went away. So now with the work that you're doing and with your practice, are we making good money now? Are we still a six-figure therapist? Are we? <laughs> so with my day job, I'm pulling in $106,000 a year. And with my private practice, five to 10 hours a week, I'm pulling in around thirty to $50,000 a year. Okay, okay, all right. So that's not bad. And especially now that you have a house and you have, you know, so you don't really need a lot. Okay. Okay. So that's not bad at all. So, and that's not working that much. So that's pretty good. Okay. Not, and, yeah. and especially to have a small population of people um, in, in where you live in Hawaii. So that's okay. All right. So now what's your, 
So in order, and you talked about some of the strengths that you had to be a six-figure therapist, you know, in terms of what you learned and your dancing and things like that. What are some things or what's something you're still working through um, to, to, you know, as you matriculate in the profession? So one of the things I do with my day job is I help people with severe mental illness get qualified for an extra level of care with the insurance company. So they get an extra insurance so that they can have unlimited um, mental health visits. So what I do with that is I do an assessment called an 1157. And that assessment is pretty much a checkbox assessment and then having to write up the clinical notes. So the part that I'm working on currently for my professional development is getting really good at writing those clinical notes. It is very um, time consuming and it is very um, cumbersome. It's very, it's just not really my, my cup of tea or my kuleana, my responsibility out here. I just don't like writing the reports. So professionally, that's my development that I'm working on and getting better at that report writing. And then as far as like my personal development with education is getting the PhD and then doing um, here in Hawaii, we have what they call 704 hearings and that is fitness to stand trial. Mm -hmm. And I really want to work with people trying, we don't have anybody here to do those. So we have to source out to the other islands or to California. And so it's really a disservice we do here because um, a lot of people are said to be fit to stand trial when they're actually really suffering from the severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I want to work on professionally is doing those hearings. And then also building the practice to be the go-to sexual person in Maui. In Hawaii, we have two sexual uh, therapists. They're both on Oahu. One is a medical doctor and the other one works in the prisons. So we have nobody. So that's really where I'm hoping to start um, building my practice up is both the severe mental illness in court and the sexual related um, practice and sexual related trauma. Okay. Yeah. And, and actually when you were saying that, cause I have some, I have two people. So somebody is coming to talk about notes and somebody is coming to talk about the forensics. They've been doing over 20 years doing those reports and I never want, and that's the cool thing about this. I'm hoping is that we get to have a whole diverse group of people. Like I don't ever want to go to court. I have not been to court yet. Knock on wood, 27 years. I don't want to go ever <laughs> for anything. So for those of you all who do, and when I was talking to him, he said, you know, he does that all the time. And I thought, oh, you definitely have to come. So I'll tell you when that episode comes out so you can hear what he has to say. Cause he was really interested when he talked about the reports and how to testify and all that kind of stuff. So I think that'll be pretty cool. So yeah, your, your um, expansion. And when you add those things, of course, we know that's going to, that's going to take you in another direction. And I'm going to expand your vision a little bit. And when you say, you know, you want to be the expert in, in Hawaii, you know, you know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, you know, worldwide, international, right? Um, yeah. Because think about it, if nobody's talking about it, then that is something for you. And, and since you have your background and your experience in it, who, who else would be best to teach it? You know? Absolutely. Yes. No, I'm definitely looking forward to trying to create some continuing education units mm -hmm. and maybe at some level petitioning the APA and the social work um, boards to start requiring CEUs that cover topic around sex. Mm -hmm. Texas, for example, requires sex, sex trafficking requirements mm -hmm. now as part of their CEUs. So I know that it's something that we could do. And it just seems like we're just not treating the whole person by leaving that part out. So absolutely in my future, and hopefully with you, we can work on doing some continuing educations. Yes. And then like I said, that research, I can't wait. And, and hopefully with that research, we'll be better able to educate mental health providers and get more of them to talk about this 
this. And like I said, we can do some retreats and all kinds of like I got to You know, I, I, and that's why when you came and approached me with it, I was like, yes, because, again, I've been teaching for years since two. Th- no, actually, I've been teaching since the 1990s and nobody has come. Maybe one person has talked about that topic of sexuality and sex. And, you know, but it was usually as, as terms of victim and victimization as opposed to mental health providers and, and things like that, doing something with that with their clients. So I am extremely excited to see what we come up with in this in this next months together. So yay. Well, uh-huh, and hopefully you'll have me back on so we can talk about some of the oh, research definitely. and what the dissertation topic will be about. And maybe we can get some buy-in or some some people that want to contribute. Oh yeah, definitely. And like I said, I can see training people who really want the information, who really want to incorporate it because I, I honestly believe, and that's the whole reason why I even started this is I believe that a lot of times we're not doing some things, not because we don't have the desire. It's just, we don't have the knowledge or we don't have the resources or we don't have anybody to teach us those type things. So I think the more that we learn together and share together and then people start to apply it, I think we just gonna help so many more people. I mean, so it's, it's really exciting. Then there's been a cultural shift, right? We went from a sex negative approach to a sex positive approach. And these millennials are now very sex positive and they want to talk mm-hmm. about sex. So we, as a, as a profession, have to catch up. Mm-hmm. And we really have to start looking at it from a sex positive perspective. Mm-hmm. True. Very true. Yeah. And so, um, you know, like I said, we're, we're, you know, we might, why not start? Why not we beat some of the people to start that? And one of the quotes that I have on my decision board or vision board, most people call them, we call them decision boards, is um, David Goggins. I, mean, I have his book behind me, Can't Hurt Me. But he talked about being uncommon amongst the uncommon. Right. And so I'm like, yes. Yeah. So, you know, you already were uncommon and now we're going to pick a topic out and be even more uncommon amongst the uncommon. Right. And so that's what I'm hoping that this inspires people to do. And if nothing else, start to think, hey, am I talking about sexual related stuff in the, in the therapy sessions? And if not, why not? Am I? Is it something with me that I need to work through, like you were saying, or is it? something is it just me having a lack of knowledge whatever it is like you said how do you treat the whole person if we leave pieces out you know so yeah i'm very excited yes i'm very excited well i thank you so much for sitting with me today thanks for having me i really enjoyed doing this I know. And I'm hoping we'll see what people say in terms of the comments and stuff. I don't know. We might have some, some controversy, but that's, that's all right too, right? <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Cause you know what? I have zero regrets for how I, where I've ended up without doing that job. I would not be able to talk about people as with people as comfortably about sex as I do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's just very, very um, appreciative of having that as a part of my past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm hoping it does stir up something in people, because if it does, then that means we're doing something correct. Because that, you know, because right now nobody's even talking about it. So if we start talking about it, even if you don't agree with everything, then that that is something that needs to be said. Right. And then we have to think, why don't you agree? And if you do agree, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's a wonderful topic. And I know I can you know me, I thought about four or five different things we can do with it. To, to help people and expand it and all of that. So I'm really excited. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Um, and so everyone, you'll get to 
She's in Hawaii. Stephanie's in Hawaii, but you'll get to, if you want to talk to her, we'll have her information up. And, you know, I don't know if you do any consultations or anything like that or yet, or no, that's later on or what you do. I'm licensed in Hawaii and Texas. And uh, any therapist that wants to reach out to me to have a conversation about talking about sex, bring it on. I love it. Okay. And like I said, I think what we'll do is maybe have a master class because we're going to have some group sessions in the membership. So maybe we'll have some question and answer thing with you and get you to come back and then uh, see if we can have some people and start some more conversation about this. I'm ready. Yeah. Thank you so much. Ask me anything. I'm more than willing to share. I have nothing that I'm ashamed of or nothing that I'm not willing to bring forward. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'm not either. So I, that's one thing that I, <laughs> I think we enjoy about each other. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you for giving some of your time to listen to the six figure therapist, If something was said that taught or inspired you, please join us on our mission to uplift and empower mental health practitioners. You can become part of the movement by sharing this episode, subscribing to the podcast, and leaving a review. We can also be found at Six Figure Therapist on YouTube and Instagram. Until next time, we wish you wellness. And remember, broke is not your color.